Plantation SDA Church presents The Bible Unmasked. Read your Bible daily and join us every Sunday at 7.30pm for our weekly discussion. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation, let's read the entire Bible in 2021 with The Bible Unmasked. Everyone and welcome to episode 15 of The Bible Unmasked. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, as you know, this program is aired every Sunday night at 7.30 on YouTube and Plantation SDA TV. Um, our goal is to read the entire Bible in 2021. So read along with us. The reading plan, as you know, is shared weekly during Sabbath service and on social media. So please invite your, invite your friends. Please come along with us, read along with us and invite your friends and your family members to join us and um, read ahead and text your um, questions in advance to 954-388-8780. Um, we have our pastors who are answering our questions on a weekly basis, our pastors along with Principal Stevenson. So we have um, them ready and willing to answer your questions every week. So. We're gonna ask you to also you know, take the time to subscribe to the Plantation SDA Church, um, Church Choir's YouTube channel. So in, subscribe to the YouTube channel so that you will be automatically um, notified of future um, episodes or any live stream. So good evening, everyone. Good evening, Pastor Joe. Good evening. So good of you to join us as usual. Very good to have you. And um, so before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Can you pray for us? Thank you. Absolutely. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the spirit of truth that will be guiding us in a deeper understanding of your word tonight. We pray that Jesus Christ will always be in front of our lives in front of our eyes, because in his name we pray. Amen. 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 All right. So we have a very interesting study um, this week as we go into Second Samuel and into um, First Kings. And so tell us a little bit about, you know, before we even jump into this week's study, tell us a little bit about what we studied last week for those who weren't able to, to view the program. Last week was a very interesting uh, study, very interesting read from uh, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. It was about the fall of uh, Saul, the first king of Israel, and then the rise of King David. All these stories are full of drama. Yes. <laughs> all kind of uh, intriguing things that happen and then the story goes in a different direction that you than you would expect uh -huh. and uh, I believe in the story of Saul and then the story of David we can vividly see how something that could be great and wonderful uh -huh. can be ugly yes and uh, extremely troublesome okay and what do we, what are we looking at this week? Well, this week we go on with uh, 
the story of David. And uh, this time, we will see the drama of the life and kingship of David. We saw last time Saul falling and uh, David rising. And it was a beautiful reality to see how the new king is brought in by God and how God works with circumstances to prepare the way for the new king. It wasn't easy, but in the end, God places David on the throne. Okay. What makes it troublesome and disturbing for us is that uh, the same David that was providentially prepared by God and then brought to rulership has a very, um, very unexpected fall. There's a moral fall first, mm -hmm. and then everything starts falling apart around him. And uh, there are all kind of uh, family fights that happen and um, that disturb not only the life of the king, but the whole kingdom. Mm -hmm. We have fights between uh, children. We have uh, acts of uh, uh, crime committed uh, because of some problems existing in the family, because of the king keeping silent sometimes, or because the king lost legitimacy when it comes to moral advice and intervention in the life of uh, his own children. In the end, we see that uh, David's kingdom is over and Solomon, his son, comes to the throne. But that's not easy either, because now two of uh, the sons of the king mm -hmm. are disputing the chair, you know, the throne. And uh, again, you have all kind of uh, bloodshed happening even around the change of the ruler. Yes, yes. I guess it's a, a very clear story. It tells indeed a clear story of what happens to us when we don't walk in the way, you know, that the Lord has designed for us. Absolutely. And um, so, I mean, the fall of David is one of those stories in the Bible that everyone can look at and say, wow. Yeah, I can confess, never before, like now, did I realize how, how difficult, how troublesome, how disturbing the life of David really was. Mm -hmm. Because when you, when you read the whole story in one sitting, that's uh, when... Uh, Very eye-opening. <laughs> you open your eyes and you say, wow, David, mm -hmm. the man, according to God's heart, that's hard very very unpleasant all right so we do have a couple questions for you this morning as usual all right and so the first question we have is um, we're looking at second samuel 12 13 to 14 and it reads that then david confessed to nathan i have sinned against the lord nathan replied yes but the lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. So the question is, does God still punish us even after we confess our sins? 
That's a very good question. And I believe uh, we have to make a difference between forgiveness mm -hmm. and uh, the consequences of our acts. The Bible teaches that no matter what you committed, if you confess, if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive and to cleanse, to clean us. Nevertheless, the Bible doesn't promise that God will always take away the consequences of our acts. Yeah. Another very important element here is God's pedagogy, meaning that God teaches the human being and God takes the context in which you are and which you committed uh, sins and tries to use those circumstances and the effect of your actions and teach you something shape your character build your personality so when you look at the wider picture it's quite obvious that even if you are forgiven the consequences of your acts will not go away now does god punish you punishment as it is understood in our modern language maybe something else than what God does. It's not punishment for the sake of punishment. It is some divine a um, sizzling action in which God takes your life and removes some elements that are not appropriate for the development of your character. And so, and generally, there are consequences for our sins. And, um, you know, it's important that we recognize that. Absolutely. Yes. And the question is actually twofold, because it does go on to say, why did the child that was born from David's illegitimate relationship with Bathsheba have to die? Why did the child have to die? Yeah, that's a very uh, challenging question, mm -hmm. because behind that question, you can see a wider question whether children should be or could be or are punished because of the sins of their parents. If you look in the Bible, you have to be honest and recognize that the Bible speaks about something that is called corporate personality, which means that what you do as a parent Mm -hmm. direct consequences or indirect consequences on your children. You cannot avoid that. So when it comes to David, it's obvious that what happened to his child was connected to what David did. Right. Now, the question I would ask here is, did God punish the child? Why would we think that God really did something uh, against the child when in fact all we know is that God was dealing with David not punishing David but modeling David cleaning David teaching David shaping molding David when it comes to the child do we know that God killed the child in a violent way God is able to take somebody out without creating the drama 
or the trauma we think that person goes through. What I've noticed is that most of the time when it comes to tragedy, we evaluate the tragedy from our perspective, not from the perspective of the person that is going through the tragedy. Like if somebody uh, is going through some very hard times, we think, oh my goodness, this is so terrible. Why? Because of the consequences that that trauma has on other people. If you ask those people that go through those dramatic experiences with God, you will see that they have a totally different picture of it. Now, for instance, in the case of John the Baptist, he was beheaded at one point. You make a drama and say, oh my goodness. But do you understand what happens when God takes somebody out of the picture? Because you only look at the fact that somebody's head is taken off. Mm -hmm. But do you know that when you cut your finger in the first few seconds, right after the cutting, you don't even feel it? Because God built in our system a uh, um, tranquilizer, if you want to, to, to call it like that. It's, it's like you, you are getting a, a shot which uh, takes away the pain. So Sometimes it's long after before you realize. You're like, oh my goodness, when did that happen? Yes, my yeah. finger was chopped off. One of my fingers was literally chopped off. And oh, wow. I, I didn't realize I was missing my fingertip until I saw it. Because, because so that's, that's when I had a, a wake-up moment. I said, man, uh, when, when something is cut off, you don't feel it. You feel it after that. Okay, so I'm just using these illustrations to say that uh, sometimes we may interpret that God takes a baby out, kills a baby, so to speak, uh, and, and that's, that's so bad. Do you know that God didn't manifest his love actually toward that baby? What if that baby was born and grew up and then was part of all the drama and trauma that the other children of the king were part of. Mm. Would he have survived anyways? Or somebody would have killed him? God knows best. Yes. You know, God knows best. And um, think of the people looking on. David was doing everything he was big and bad enough to do. He took back Sheba, killed her husband. You know, she, he was assassinated. So yeah. that he, then he got married to her, got pregnant, had a child. You know, what sort of example is he setting for the church, for, for, for you know, I mean, for others looking on? Um, it must be seen that you're seeing, you can't just go ahead and do whatever you feel like doing and then, you know, just continue living. There are consequences. Absolutely. And if you look at, at what happened around David's act, you can imagine how difficult, how traumatic it would have been for that child to grow up and be in the middle of the fire. Yes, yes. All right, um, let's go on to the, our next question. It says, then after all of that happened, David comforted Bathsheba, um, his wife, and slept with her. Uh, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and David named him Solomon. The Lord loved the child, the Bible says. So the question is, does God love um, some of us more than others. Where else in the Bible does it say um, that it speaks that God loves someone specifically? 
So is it that God loved this child more than other children or does God love some of us more than others? Well, there is a part of the question that I cannot answer. Mm -hmm. I, I cannot answer the more or less part with regard mm -hmm. to love. What I know from the Bible is that God is love. How that love is manifested, you know, at one point, John the Apostle, one of the disciples, he said he is, although indirectly, because he doesn't point out, hey, I am the, the disciple that uh, Jesus loved. But uh, if you read the gospel, gospel of John, you will see that he's speaking about himself there. So he has that sense of uh, Jesus' love specifically for him, mm -hmm. like in a particular way. As if Jesus only loved him in that specific way. And uh, can I challenge that view? No, I think he was right. But I think it depends on how I perceive God's love. It's not necessarily that, that love comes from God in a differentiated way, like quantitatively. It's rather than uh, the perception rather that the perception of the human being that receives that love can be different. Mm -hmm. So I may feel more loved than somebody else. I sometimes hear people say uh, blessed and highly favored. Mm -hmm. And you may think, okay, so what does that mean? God favors you better <laughs> than other people? I would doubt that. But if you feel like that, hey, would I challenge that? No. No. Now, coming back to the specific reality of the child. Did God love the child, this one, and hated the other one that died? I can't say that. Because again, I don't know whether I can challenge God's love when a child dies. It may be that God's express manifestation of love toward that child is by taking that child out, so to speak, putting that child to sleep for a while. Yeah, you know, it goes back to <clears throat> the general concept that, you know, some we may have different views on this topic, but at the end of the day, we may not understand everything here and now on this earth as we're here. Um, but eventually, you know, eventually when we get to heaven, everything will be clear to us because this God has a plan. And he has a plan for all of us and he loves all his children, you know, so we just have to continue to live the life that he has asked us to live. And, you know, as we journey on our way to heaven. Yes. All right. So now we get into this, you know, if this had happened today, what we're reading, reading here about Ammon and Tamar and all of that, we would say, wow, this is something that would come on like the next 48 hours or something like that, you know. Um, we would say, wow, I can't believe he would do something like that. So, you know, that, that, that's what we're going to get into now with this question from 2 Samuel 13, verse 15. It says, then Ammon hated her exceedingly. And we know this is after he actually took advantage of his sister, Tamar. Ammon hated her exceedingly so that he hated, so, sorry, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And he had loved her for a long time. 
And Ammon said to her, arise and be gone. So the question is, how can love turn into hatred like that? <laughs> well, like that, exactly. Just like that. <laughs> Just like that. Because the question is, was uh, Ammon really loving mm. his sister? Infatuation or uh, falling Lust. in love with somebody in a pathetic way, is that really love? And it's obvious, and I, I could tell you story after story, that people that were so much in love with somebody, it didn't take long until everything turned around and the hatred was bigger than the love before. So I think it's, it's something in the human being that, that is broken and uh, obviously, uh, when uh, Amnon uh, forced, abused his sister, that brokenness only deepened. And at one point, uh, you committed the, the crime, the sin. You cannot reverse that. And now you have to deal with the consequences. And those consequences that hit you make your feelings even worse and and then your hatred is revealed mm -hmm. and uh, you cast her out and, and send her away so it's it's drama it's uh, soap opera right everything everything that, bad that can happen happens yes that's sin that's sin and then um it says um in second samuel 13 verse 16 after amon says you know, arise and be gone. Um, Tamar's, no, no, Tamar cried. Sending me away now is worse than what you've already done to me. But Ammon wouldn't listen to her. She was basically saying, if you ask my father for me, he will give you to me. Do not put this sort of disgrace on me. So it says here, why didn't Tamar leave? Why sending her, why um, sending her away? Why was sending her away worse than raping her? It's, it's the shame culture that plays a very important role here. See, before the rape happened, uh, Tamar was trying to convince her brother not to do it. Right. For the king to uh, arbitrate this situation. Mm -hmm. I can imagine that she was hoping the king would stop the whole process. But now once it's committed, it was a huge disgrace for uh, a lady, a young lady, to just be sent away like that. Because they were half-brothers. Mm -hmm. uh, same father, half different mothers. Sister. Right, brother and sister. Yes. And um, the Bible, in the Law of Moses, um, clearly says that that kind of relationship mm -hmm. should not be practiced either. And yet, culturally, it seems that it was tolerated. Right. So uh, probably Tamar, or she, she was probably hoping that uh, now that it happened, now she would probably become the wife of Amnon. Mm -hmm. But no, uh, hatred, you know, the consequences of your actions um, made Amnon uh, chase her away and uh, bring the disgrace or at least the perceived 
this quiz because you always have reality and the reality as it is perceived by somebody. So the disgrace that Tamar perceives is uh, crushing for her. Yes, yes. Um, very sad story indeed. Um, the next question is taken from 2 Samuel 13, verse 21. Um, but when David heard of these things, he was very angry. What was David's response? And how would you evaluate his response to the whole situation? Yes, uh, I think the narrative, because in, in the Hebrew literature, and we are dealing here with uh, Hebrew literature, you always have this way of uh, telling you something in a story. It doesn't tell you specifically, hey, this is what I want to give you but the narrative somehow points it out for you. Mm -hmm. So David is angry, but he has no direct response. And uh, I see in the picture of David, in the profile of David here, the powerless and almost helpless parent that messed up his or her own life to the point where he or she cannot say anything when his or her children mess up. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a sort of uh, disqualified um, parent that uh, cannot do anything else or cannot do more than just getting angry. What, what am I going to do now? One, one of my sons, um, just uh, humiliated one of my daughters. Mm -hmm. And as a father, what can I say? Because I did what I did just a few years ago with this lady. But there she. You go. So, so now, now, what value does my word have in such a context? Very, very uh, um, frustrating situation, I would say. Yes, and now and and then you know, look at what happened after that. You know, yeah. Absalom now getting um, it was very upset about the whole situation, and uh, then started plotting to kill him, to kill his brother. So here we're seeing again the results of our sinful actions. Yes, absolutely, and we have a very complex and complicated context here because we have polygamy. Mm -hmm. have uh, children coming from different uh, mothers and then we have the sense of uh, guilt that uh, was uh, burdening David's heart up to one point when he confessed and then God forgave him but at the same time God told him that uh, the sword would not disappear from his family line so now he he kind of sees it coming, but he, he cannot even intervene or he doesn't know what to do, how to intervene. I cannot imagine that David didn't know what happened was utterly wrong. I'm almost convinced right. he knew it was wrong and he should have done something. But it seems that he, he couldn't just do something effective. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's move on. We'll now move on to um, 
we have a question here regarding David's um, recognition of um, Absalom um, as a king, right? It says, it, it's reading from 2 Samuel 15, verse 19, where it says, the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. So yeah. you are a foreigner and exiled from your homeland. So what is this reference to Absalom? Um, Absalom as king. At a, at a superficial or shallow reading, you may have uh, the feeling that uh, David, the legit king, recognizes uh, Absalom, the illegitimate king. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's what the text says. I would rather put king when it comes to Solomon in uh, quotation marks. It's like uh, Hey, go go back, go back and stay with your king, king, in uh, quotation marks. It's not that he really recognizes at that point his son as being the king, but at the level of uh, discourse, different, different translations, I suppose. It's not it's not the translations because the the word is king there, but it's, it's, it's king. for instance. Let, let me give an illustration. Yeah. Uh, say say a church splits because in the church there is somebody that wants to be the pastor of the church and he cannot take over, so the church splits. Uh, and uh, somebody goes with that pastor that takes part of the church away. Okay, then that person comes back to the church and the pastor of the church uh, asks, asks the person, hey, why, why don't you go uh, with your pastor? Mm -hmm. Does that mean he recognizes the other pastor as the pastor? Not necessarily. Okay. okay. It's a way of saying it. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. So let's move a little further now down to 2 Samuel 15, verse 34. Um, but if you return to the city and say to Absalom, Your Majesty, I will be your servant. I was your father's servant in the past but now I will be your servant. Then you can help me um, by uh, frustrating Ansafelt's advice. So it's asking about um, David here, actually um, telling um, Hushai how to lie or deceive um, Absalom. Was that what was going on here? Very much looks like that. So uh, David teaches one of his uh, servants right. how to go and become the servant, the fake servant of his son, right. so he can uh, find out the plans that they devise against him. So from the perspective of uh, ethically correctness here, it's obvious that uh, it's like in the saying, uh, in uh, love and war, uh, everything is fair. Everything is fair. <laughs> David does whatever it takes, with some limitations, though. Yes. Uh, to find out the strategy of his enemy, which is his son, actually. Mm -hmm. Now, I would also say that in Hebrew mentality, uh, the use of truth and falsehood is... Uh, somewhat more relaxed than uh, it is at a theoretical level in Christianity. Because we tend to translate the commandment 
from the Decalogue, which says, do not uh, bear false witness against your neighbor. We tend to translate that as don't lie. Mm -hmm. But that commandment is very specific. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. So it's a certain way of using truth or falsehood. And if you go through the, through the Old Testament, you will see that sometimes men of God, and sometimes it seems that even God is involved directly in using truth in a way or falsehood in a way to, to trick the enemy or the agents of evil. Okay. You, said, you, you did use a very important word, it seems. <laughs> so it, it's not necessarily what is going on. Yes, it, it, is, it is very hard to say, you know, because sometimes you have to take into account the fact that you are not always dealing with mature people. And um, God uses human beings with the context, with the circumstances they are in. So looking from the outside, you may have the impression, man, God is doing something wrong here. Mm -hmm. But then God is actually working with the human agent there. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's move on to our next question, which comes to us from 2 Samuel 16, verse 11. Uh, David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. So this is Absalom trying to kill David. So how much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse for the Lord has told him to. So the question here is asking, does the Lord really order someone to curse someone else? Very good question. Very interesting question. I, I, I really thought about it when I, I read through the passage. So the, the, the short version of the story is, Somebody comes out and curses David. And somebody from David's uh, team says, hey, do you want me to, to bring him to silence? Meaning, let me take him out. Right, right. And, and David says, no, 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 because God ordained that uh, person to curse me. Does God ordain people to curse some other people? That's a good question. What I can say for certain here is that uh, David either perceived that in that context it was God speaking through that person that was cursing him, which can happen, I believe, or David used this tweak so that he can convince his servant not to go and uh, unnecessarily uh, shed blood. So it's, it's, I think from this perspective, the question is about what David says. Is that reality or wrong perception? Again, it's in war. Mm -hmm. and, and, and nobody says that, that in a war context, David always has the right perception of reality. But it may be, it may be easily that David has the right perception and through that person that was, cur was cursing, he actually was hearing God speaking. And I can remember um, stories uh, in my own life when somebody was not 
necessarily cursing me, but saying bad things. Mm -hmm. And uh, some other people were disturbed, and I wasn't disturbed. Because I took it as God using that person to wake me up. Okay. So it it may have been a wake-up call to David. To David. Okay. All right. So we know what happened there in terms of the whole story of um, David being pursued. Um, and think back, this was something that um, you remember what had happened to Saul, you know? <laughs> so, you know, the whole story comes right around full circle. But anyways, um, it says here in 2 Samuel 20, verse 3, when David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took 10 concubines he had left to take care of the palace. He had left them there to take care of the palace and he put them in a house under guard. Um, he provided for them, but no sexual relations. Um, he didn't have any sexual relations with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. Um, two things jump out to me. The question here is, wasn't that an act of abuse against his concubines? Someone may also ask, why was he allowed to have concubines? Men read these parts of the Bible and say, well, David had how many wives? Solomon had how many wives? Why do I only need to have one? You know? And then the question here actually is, wasn't that an, an act of abuse against the concubines, having them locked away until, you know, um, as I said, living as widows? Yes, I, I remember a verse from the Apostle Paul when he says, uh, everything is allowed to me, not everything is profitable. Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, the question is, uh, who allowed David to have concubines? Mm -hmm. We don't have any biblical passage in which God prescribes somebody to have more than one wife. We have uh, uh, specific rules and regulations as to how to limit the harm of this cultural reality, polygamy, mm -hmm. which uh, is present throughout almost the entire Old Testament, and to some degree is hinted about or hinted on even in the New Testament. So obviously we have a less than ideal situation here in David's life. Now, the story, the specific uh, scenario that the question uh, is about is uh, after um, Absalom uh, went in to the 10 concubines of uh, David that were left home to take care of uh, the household uh, and then David comes back home uh, the question was so what should happen now to these concubines because they were um, humiliated by uh, Absalom, Ev everybody knew what happened because that's that's the point. That's why Absalom did it mm -hmm. to create uh, an uproar. And now everybody knew what happened. So it's a very political situation in which uh, David has to give a signal against what his son had committed. In most cases, historically, if something like this happened, the solution would have been very easy for the king, kill the concubines. Mm -hmm. So here, here is one point that I, I want to make. When we judge something from our perspective today, it's obviously here we have 
an abuse. Mm -hmm. how, how can you do something like that? You isolate 10 women. Yes, you provide for them, but uh, they are practically uh, slaves. They don't have their freedom. Okay, They have um, been humiliated, but uh, now, now they are just, uh, they, they just disappear virtually. But then the question is, okay, so would it have been better for uh, David to have killed them? Yeah. In that context. <laughs> see, so is, is this God's expressed will? In the text, you will never find any specification that God told David, this is how you have to proceed with your uh, concubines or right. with your wives. This is a political solution that the king found. And we cannot say the king uh, always had the right solution. On the contrary, quite often the king was wrong. That's the point of the whole story. Right, right, right. All right, and then it goes on in 2 Samuel 21, 8 and 14, uh, 8 to 14 to say, so the king took two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai and Armoni, and uh, Mephibosheth, whom she had borne to Saul, and the five sons of Merab, the daughters of Saul, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of um, Barzillia, the, um, the Methalathite. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin in Zela, in the grave of Kish, his father. Thus they did all that the king commanded, and after that, God was moved by prayer for the land. So that was a lot. What well, the question is, was that a God-ordained act of atonement or cleansing? What was really going on here? Yeah, I, I believe in order for our viewers to understand what is going on here, we have to I, give a, a snippet of the story. So... Um, you remember maybe the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were uh, a people uh, in Canaan that came and uh, lied to the Israelites that they were coming from far away and uh, mm -hmm. they, they asked the Israelites to spare their lives and they would serve them. And uh, the Israelites at that point entered into a covenant with the Gibeonites. So God promised that uh, the Gibeonites will not be destroyed. Nevertheless, when King Saul came to power, he, he had a fixation on the Gibeonites. So he would go and cut them, just, just destroy them. So when David comes, uh, at one point, um, there's no rain. Famine is hitting the land. And somehow he finds out, it seems that he found that out from God, somehow, because he had uh, prophets, Nathan and uh, Gad. So he finds out that the problem is, the reason why the land is hit by famine is uh, because of what Saul did to the Gibeonites. Mm -hmm. So now David uh, tries to fix the problem. Saul did this. So he asked the Gibeonites, okay, so how, how can we help you? How can we solve this problem? And the Gibeonites come with the solution, hey, give us seven men from the house of uh, Saul, from, from the troublemakers, from those that 
would come and destroy our nation. We will hang them, uh, and uh, that's it. Now, it sounds very weird, right? Because it sounds like <coughs> like an atonement. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, David does that. He takes seven sons of uh, Saul and uh, gives them over to the Gibeonites. They are killed, they are hung. Mm. And uh, then there is that final line that you read that uh, the problem went away, right? The problem was solved. Yeah. It says, after that, God was moved by prayer for the land. Yeah. So, so God removed his um, um, plague from the land. Mm -hmm. So it very much sounds as if uh, it really was effective. What I can draw as a conclusion without uh, having the assumption that I know it all, <laughs> of course, is that, uh, again, we are dealing here with a cause-effect situation, causality law, in which uh, Saul did this, and what Saul did has a repercussion on his children as well. Mm -hmm. So, again, if you thought uh, your children are separate from you, uh, try and revise that position because it's not like that. Indeed, indeed. Um, and then, as you mentioned, plague uh, in Second Samuel. Further in the in the text, it says in Second Samuel twenty four verse fifteen. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of time um, designated, and seventy thousand of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. So um, you can tell us a little bit more about what's going on here also and the question is are plagues sent by god there is an assumption in christianity according to which everything that is good comes from god and everything uh, that is bad comes from the devil mm -hmm. uh, we have pretty strong evidence in the bible that uh, plagues come from god yes actually from the perspective of a believer everything that hits from God because the devil is powerful but the devil cannot do anything without the signature of the big boss of God right so in that sense every plague comes from God mm -hmm. but it seems that there are situations where uh, for some pedagogical reasons for some uh, um, educational purposes, God expressly sends plagues. I, I would, I would like to throughout to, the Bible. We see that happening. Yeah, I, I would like to be able to uh, to change that. <laughs> <laughs> to, but but I, I believe it's, it's better to accommodate my views to what uh, the Bible says about God, and it's. It, Somebody will say, okay, so, so doesn't this make God into a monster? Well, not really. Because you always have to keep in mind what is at stake. For instance, in the case of the Egyptians, God was sending plagues on the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. 
But why? Because the Egyptians, the strong nation, was uh, subjugating and exploiting and abusing a small nation, the mm. nation of Israel. And God wanted them to be freed. And uh, the big guys, the abuser, those in power, right? They didn't want that. So then the question is, okay, so uh, would it be more beautiful or more attractive in God's profile if he said, okay, if they don't want to, let them just continue the abuse. So, so that's, that's not a monster. No. But, but if, if God hits the abuser, that's a monster. Mm, not, not really. You understand where, where the problem lies? Yes. With God's character? So if, if, God, if God does something that we don't like, he's a monster. If he doesn't do anything, then he's not a monster. So where is the moral component of the whole story? So yes, God has the right to intervene, sometimes even through plagues. Yes, that is so true. All right, so we're, we're, um, our study takes us into chapters one to five of First Kings, right? And so we're going to jump into that now. So on the question is coming from First Kings, uh, First King one, sorry, two to four. So his servants said to him, "Let them seek a young virgin for my lord the king, and let her attend the king and become his nurse, and let her lie in his bosom, that my lord the king may keep warm." So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful and she became the king's nurse and served him, but the king did not cohabit with her. Um, so you can tell us what's happening here as we're moving out of um, Samuel into to king and um, also into kings. And then the question is, is there any reasonable explanation for this? Didn't um, he have wives and concubines? Why did he need um, a virgin? Was it some sort of, you know, um, you know, um, concept that a virgin would be is what is needed to solve the king's problem? I, I, I am uh, amazed of how 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 hard it is, it is even to express what is going on there. You know? <laughs> exactly. Because because uh, if you read this with a postmodern mind you will say man what yes crazy how how on earth but again you you have to try to reason with those realities in those days according to the mentality of those days mm -hmm. one thing we can take out of this equation uh, this is not a sexual kind of abuse it's clear the passage makes it clear and i think there's a reason why it makes it clear that uh, David did not sexually use this young lady. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a fact when people grow old, uh, they, uh, they have a hard time warming up. Uh, the Bible says that the best uh, way uh, to warm up is to, to have two in the same bed, right? Uh, it's it's uh, in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes. It says that... Uh, it's better for two than for one because if they are together, they warm up each other. Yeah. I remember I remember stories 
back in the day of uh, old ladies uh, telling uh, the story of, hey, you know, my, my little uh, grand, granddaughter comes over and sleeps with me in the bed and it's so good, she warms me up so well, you know. Uh, and and that, that's that's a, that's a nice little story, right? When uh, uh, an old grandma uh, has uh, her granddaughter over, and and uh, and they they cuddle a little bit, right? And uh, they warm up, they sleep uh, in the same bed. Uh, here, here the story is different. It's the king, and and a young lady is brought to the king. We don't know if uh, with her consent or not, most probably not with her consent, maybe with the, the parents' consent, with the father's consent. So here we can clearly see that uh, um, women in those days, the dignity or the value of a human being when it comes to women was, was still on very shaky grounds. Very so, uh, Sorry? Very shaky grounds. Very shaky grounds. <laughs> yes. yeah. So a young lady is brought brought there to the king, and uh, uh, we don't know that this was disgraceful. On the contrary, it seems that later, when uh, Solomon's brother Adonijah, I think is the name, the one that rebelled and wanted uh -huh. to be king, he asks for uh, that young lady that used to sleep in the bed of his father to become his wife. Mm. So it seems that the closer you were to the king, it's, it's um, something that gives you a position. Improve your status in yeah, life. The status, yeah, exactly. So um, there, are, there are things that are very, very hard to understand here. Why, why not a wife? Well, or a concubine. Again, society is very different in those days. Uh, you have a harem. Uh, you have um, wives, concubines. That doesn't mean all those wives sleep with you in, in your bed. No. Actually, when he grew old, the king was a lonely guy. Mm -hmm. So the solution they found for him to, to warm up was to bring uh, a body close to his body. Now, from the perspective of, of a 21st century human being, that's disgusting in itself. Exactly. Right? In that context, what we can say, it happened. Was it good? Not necessarily. Okay. Time is against us, but we just want to slip this last question in, and it's looking at first um, King's to the, the whole chapter, right? And it says, um, the question is, having read that chapter, the viewer wants to know, is it commendable for parents to ask their children to complete the messy work or the revenge they didn't complete? <laughs> Very good question. And, and that, that disturbed me when I read, um, I think it's chapter two, right? In which uh, David, before he dies mm -hmm. on his, Death bad, he speaks to Solomon and gives him specific um, guidelines as to how to revenge, maybe, or how to do justice with regard to some of the people 
that acted unjustly. And um, the disturbing part was for me, okay, so now why do you have to bring these things over from one generation to the other? To apply it for, for our own, or to our own life today. You have, you have uh, generations, right? And you know that this generation, in this generation, the parents of this child and the parents of this child didn't go well together. But the children, they play together. And I don't know what happens, but after a time, you will realize that the same enmity or the same animosity that was here between the parents is also installed between the children. It's like an inheritance, a legacy that they pass on from one generation to the other. Hey, okay, so now, now that I'm dying, you that uh, become the king, you do this to uh, Joab, you do this to uh, um, this and to that. I don't think mm-hmm. it's uh, the divine perspective on reality. Uh, I, I believe it's good to come to a closure and not pass on your messy situation to your children. Yeah. But again, uh, for a non-perfect or not so perfect, not so ideal context in which David was the king and then Solomon became the king. This is what happened. And the role of the story of uh, the history of these people is for us to see reality as it was. And based on principles that are outlined in other parts of the Bible, more specifically in the life of Jesus Christ, Mm-hmm. And all those stories that point to Jesus Christ, it is left up to us to see what was good and what was bad. Because if when we preach, for instance, if we preach from the book of First uh, King or Second Samuel, and we only take those books into uh, uh, consideration without the life and legacy of Jesus Christ, the Savior, man, we will preach a very weird gospel. That is such an important point. <laughs> that is such yeah. an important point, Pastor. And, and by the way, I want to encourage our viewers, all those that go through the Bible this way, uh, reading week after read, uh, week, please don't read it detached from what you know from Jesus Christ. If you read the Bible, and this is a risk, if you read a Bible without the life and legacy of Jesus Christ, without the teaching of Jesus Christ, man, you will go off. So the reflector or the, 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 the spotlight under which we have to read the Bible, the Old Testament in a special way, is always Jesus Christ, his life, his legacy, his teaching, his attitude. What would Jesus say in this context? How would he act? in this specific situation. Amen, amen. And that is such a good point to, to close off our study for this evening on. And um, again, thank you so much, Pastor, for being here with us. I really do appreciate you taking pleasure. time. And um, next week, we have um, Pastor Jen and Principal Stevenson who will be taking us through 1 Kings 6 through to 22. 
And um, we want to invite our viewers to, as you just said, Pastor, to read, to read along with us. Um, read daily, not all at once. And um, text your questions into 954-388-8780. Sorry, That's 954-388-8780. So um, again, Pastor Jen and Principal Stevenson will be um, with us next week. What can we expect um, as we read through 1 Kings 6 to 22, Pastor? The next section, most, most of the, the next section is uh, the story of Solomon, how uh, he got installed and then, then how he started out well and then uh, following the pattern, you know, he started uh, the downward path and uh, things were starting to fall apart. And then we also have uh, uh, the continuation of the kingdom, how the kingdom was divided at one point, how uh, the kings of the north and of the south, um, Israel and Judah, uh, were fighting against one another. The drama continues. <laughs> okay. So, yes, on that note, we will close out for today. And um, so just a reminder, viewers, please subscribe to the Plantation SCA Church's um, YouTube channel to be automatically notified of episodes and any other live stream events that we have coming on. All right. So that brings us to the end this evening of our study. And um, we want to thank our viewers for joining us. And thank you again, Pastor, for being here. And um, we just want to close off with a word of prayer. Absolutely. Can you go ahead and pray for us, Pastor? Sure. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, your spirit leading us in this study. Of course, we try to answer some questions, but uh, every answer can raise other questions. And I pray, Lord, that uh, all our viewers or listeners will be able to continue to deepen their understanding, not giving up easily, but always looking at the Bible, at uh, the teachings of the Old Testament in, the special, in a special way, from the perspective in the light of the life and legacy of Jesus Christ, the Savior. May your spirit continue to guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Plantation SDA Church presents The Bible and Must. Read your Bible daily and join us every Sunday at 7.30pm for our weekly discussion. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation, let's read the entire Bible in 2021 with the Bible Unmasked.